This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave, a 3RRR film criticism show. My name is Thomas Caldwell. I'm joined tonight by Cerise Howard and Alexandra Heller-Nicholas. On our show tonight... We've got a couple of films where dance plays a central part, but in very different ways. We'll be looking at the independent American drama The Fits and then the 1967 French musical The Young Girls of Rockfort. But first, Finding Dory. This is the new 3D computer animated feature film by Pixar Animation Studios. Now it's both a sequel and a spin-off from Pixar's much-loved 2003 family film Finding Nemo. Andrew Stanton returns as writer-director and nearly all the cast and characters from Nemo reappear to some degree. But of course, this time the focus is on Dory, the blue tang fish with short-term memory loss, voiced by Ellen DeGeneres. Now, while Dory predominantly provided comic relief as a supporting character in Finding Nemo, uh, as she helped reunite Nemo with his father, Marlin, in this film, Nemo and Marlin are supporting characters helping Dory to find the parents she's only recently remembered that she had forgotten. Most of the action takes place at a sea park and involves the characters being continually split up and misdirected, introducing a whole bunch of new characters, including sea lions, whales, and Cerise, an octopus, that I know left quite an impression on you somewhat. Septopus, I think you'll find. Mm. Yes. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a septopus. Did, did I miss a crucial gag? Yeah, he's only got seven legs. So he's a septopus. I think that's what wound him up in the infirmary in the first mm. place. You know, I saw this very, very tired. Yeah. I must have nodded off when that whole setup for his you, character. You hallucinated <laughs> an extra leg. <laughs> that's terrible. I apologise. So a septopus, who is also a chameleon. I didn't know octopuses could do that. I don't know if octopuses know they can do that. I think it's partial to those mm. voiced by Ed O'Neill from Married with Children. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, the great Ed O'Neill. The, the great. And... and um, Bill and Ted? Is it Bill and Ted? No, Wayne's World. Wayne's World, Wayne's yeah. World. There's some sort of strange guru character in that. Oh, yeah. And, and, so and he's in a show that I'm guessing none modern, of us watch, but we're family. aware of. Modern Family, yeah. But yeah. I adore The it one that's not married with children. That's, <laughs> it always comes back to married with children. Before we start talking about Dory, can we talk yeah. about Piper? What did you think of Piper? The film Pixar are quite well known for their introduction yeah, films, which, is yeah. a, which, which has become a standard thing that Pixar's reintroduced. I really Piper love it. was gorgeous, it's, wasn't it? I really like yeah. the idea that Pixar have these little shorts. It just reminds me of like the olden days of films where you would get those. This was the norm back yeah, in the day. Yeah, there's something really lovely at the, 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 the Pixar tradition. I'm not, I'm not like a flag waving Pixar fan, like like some other people on this show, but. I love that tradition. Ow. I love that tradition. I think it's beautiful. Do you and think I really I'm a liked... Pixar flamewagger? Well, you all are compared to me. Compared I, to me, because I'm, I'm going to say I'm not necessarily, um, but there's been a few films I've adored. I the, I thought Piper Piper almost made up for that weird volcanoes in love mm. thing before Inside Out. What the hell was that called? Oh, that made me laugh. I think that it was just was, called lava. Wasn't that it? was some wet time. Yeah, that yeah. was just wet and no good. It, it was a low point. But yeah. I, I, th- I thought Piper was a really lovely little film about separation anxiety, I guess, and and being brave to get up. Yeah, a young child finding the confidence to face the world. It was a really gorgeous little film about a, a seabird. 
And quite quite unusual animation, I think, for what I normally think of as, as Pixar, certainly in the last couple of years, but really heavy photorealism, uh, photoreal aesthetic. You know, the foam and the sand and the feathers. Yeah, I, I walked in just as that was ending, in fact, so I missed... Uh, oh, spoiler. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but it, it did look, yes, uh, very real. Now, let's set this up. Alex, you've seen Finding Nemo. Yeah, yeah many, I, many times. Yes, yeah, you, you have a child who's the age, I'm assuming, who loves it. I've seen it a couple of times. And I've Cerise, not. you haven't. No. So I'm really, oh, really? curious to know what, what it was like seeing Finding Dory without the, the, the setup of Finding Nemo behind it. Yeah, well, I think the setup is more or less explained within the first, let's say, 15 to 30 minutes. I don't remember exactly how I became aware of what was on, except I mean, you get to meet a, a little fish called Nemo who has a dad fish named was it marlin marlin doesn't look much like a marlin he's like a clown fish but his name fish. is marlin yeah yeah that's a joke perhaps because a marlin's a big scary fish with a huge spiky thing it, it's, it's, it's ironically named because yes. marlin's a bit of a coward in nemo and yeah. it's the confidence so, so it's, it's humorous yes yes <laughs> correct <laughs> correct <laughs> way to kill a joke guys <laughs> yeah. Yeah. we just yeah. explain the joy out of that <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh look um hmm. I, I found this film largely enjoyable coming at it cold, um, except you know, Dory did begin to, to wear me down a bit because the, the ja- it's made into a joke, her short-term, was it remembery loss? Her remembery loss. Yeah, which, which it does wear, wear a bit thin. I mean, obviously, that's the whole impetus for this story. They're not exactly the impetus for making the film because I'm sure this is the big dollar really was the biggest uh, motivation towards making a, a spin-off slash sequel to Nemo. Um but as soon as the octopus entered the fray, I, the film had me because uh, you can have a great deal of fun with any sort of chameleonic figure. Uh, and uh, Pixar do let their imagination run riot and, and letting this octopus run amok. Um, the octopus just seems an unstoppable force of nature, really. It's surprising it wound up in the infirmary in the first place because it's clearly capable of getting out of almost any fix imaginable. Um, if only it just had... Uh, I don't know if it wasn't such a, a terrible pessimist. That's because it's, no one's ever truly loved it or something. Um, <laughs> it's the character that has the biggest character arc, really, isn't it? Yeah. It sort of has the biggest change of heart. It's easily the most charismatic character. Yeah. Though the sea lions are quite entertaining, but you wouldn't <laughs> want them to be on screen for much longer than they are either. I've, I'm feeling a bit of love here for the th- third film in this series, Finding Hank. Is, is that where we're going? Can we? Which one's Hank? Hank oh, they're, they're the octopus. Right, they're, they're, they're octopus. <laughs> Sorry, the Or <laughs> the septopus. I would, yeah. I would love Finding Hank. That's my kind of film. I don't know who'd be looking for him, but aside from us. <laughs> what, what do we know about Sigourney Weaver and her role within the environmental movement? I was reading about this. Um, mm. That whole thing of her being the voice of the um, sea park was a really obscure left-field joke that they were sure was going to get cut, and it just stayed in. I, I think um, unless she had something to do with the Blackfish doco. Was she involved with the raising sure. battle? I'm drawing a complete blank, but I know it was a really left of field gag that Sigourney Weaver would be the voice of the sea park. And it, yeah. it is her being Sigourney Weaver in the film. And mentioned explicitly, regularly. Yeah, over and over again. Yeah. And it's just one of those weird in-jokes that apparently made it all the way to the final film. I mean, certainly there's a lot of uh, environmental um, commentary smuggled effortlessly into this film. A lot of the... The, uh, the world, the sea world beyond the contained sea world uh, is full of litter and human debris and, and it looks ugly and it's, it's not commented on in any direct way, it's just visualised and it's there and it's part of the, the mise-en-scene and of course any 
kid watching this, perhaps with their parents, might later on say, oh, you know, bits of it were very pretty, but there were those really ugly bits, and then parents might get to have a little chat with the kid about, yes, this is you know, indicative of what human beings and all their awfulness are doing to our oceans. I don't know that the film really goes much deeper than that in engaging with these things. It's very surface, but then maybe that's what you want, to get conversations between parents and children going on uh, these matters. There is, a gen- there is a bit of dialogue I scribbled down at one point where a character says it's way better to, to live in the open than to be in captivity. So it is explicitly stated. Um, so I don't know why I thought Sigourney Weaver had any involvement with Blackfish. I just had a quick look online. She does not in any way whatsoever, as far as I can tell. So I, I just imagine that link. But it's well, certainly this film is made with films like Blackfish in mind, I think that we've become more aware of how animals in captivity in certain environments is a really bad thing for, for the animals. Yeah, that's the thing. So that, that's, that is definitely spoken of, but just more in terms of human effects upon what covers most of the, the planet, in fact, oceans, yeah. that, uh, that we are doing dreadful things to them and to the food chain and ultimately to us. It's, it's, it's there, but it's just not in the foreground. I presume that was in Nemo as well, that there was that element. Was it? Um, surely... Surely? No? I can't recall. Both Nemo and Dory are pretty thematically light, is my feeling. And I th- I didn't enjoy this as much as Nemo. I think Nemo had a really good trajectory, a really good sort of hero's journey story, where Dory's a little bit all over the place. And this is going to sound really weird for a film about talking fish, but the internal logic of Nemo worked really well for me, where the internal logic of this film went bonkers. And... It's got a very spectacular ending, but it is so beyond the realm of believability, and I know how ridiculous that sounds. It kind of the internal logic completely is obliterated in this film. It's a lot of fun, but I did like how the self-contained world of Nemo functioned better. I saw this with a bunch of kids yep. in, the, in the cinema, and it was really interesting. They were all around the same age, and um, they were really with the film up into what I think is the film's organic ending so it's you know there's a kind of the film is moving towards a, a reunion and it reaches that reunion and then there's a whole extra bit tacked on and that's what the I'm kids were about. gone yeah and i think if, if, if four-year-olds don't buy it you're in trouble yep. um i i'm kind of the opposite funnily enough in that i i just find the character of dory a little i, I was more kind of engaged with her than i was with nemo and it could just be that i've had my joy for life beaten out of me by forced repeated <laughs> viewings of finding nemo <laughs> so i definitely put that out there as as a kind of personal uh indicator of <laughs> where i'm at with these films rather than any kind of critical objective opinion on the film the flip side to all this environmental stuff though is what i i find the most interesting about finding dory when i knew that this film was happening it's like oh god and there's actually a great review on the onion it's like ha 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 the wacky hijinks of somebody's suffering mm. from quite debilitating debilitating memory loss like wacky zany how hilarious yes, is that i want to mention this too um, yeah i thought that the film dealt with it i mean it's it's a running I mean, to say that it's a running gag it's it's a kind of constantly beaten in gag she says it all the time she said it all the time in the first film i like where it goes i actually really liked the treatment of this because there's never any talk of a cure there's never any kind of hey look suddenly i can remember everything things come in flashes Mm. but there's never any talk of quote unquote recovery it's about a learning to live with it and learning to live well with with this um, impairment, this memory impairment that she has, but also her community and her family and her friends realizing that she has abilities that they can learn from, and I—that's actually what I took from this film um, 
more than anything kind of environmental. It was like, you know, what let's how what would Dory what would Dory do? How would she think her way out of this? And so the the, the characters with memories were actually learning that they could learn things from her, and I found that quite sweet. That is definitely what stood out for me as well. I mean, she's the comic relief in the first film because of this memory loss, and very quickly in the second film they establish the tragedy of that, and you feel enormous empathy for her. There's real frustration and anxiety, I think, in that character. A sense of loss, Mm -hmm. and I think it's remarkable how they turned her into a more three-dimensional character who you really felt for, and I added to what you just said, what I really liked is how there was this message in this film about people who uh, have disabilities can live a really fulfilling life if the people around them just take one or two steps to make life a little bit easier. And the, the big recurring thing in this film is the idea of the seashells that help her, that help direct her to where she needs to be. And if a few people do that, and, you know, that could be a metaphor for wheelchair yep. ramps or, um, or, or pedestrian crossings that make noise, you know, there's these little tiny things the rest of us can do for, for people who are... Uh, yeah, born with certain conditions can live as just as a fulfilling life as us. And, and I, I thought that was a gorgeous message. I think the flip side is even more important, though. It's like, what can we learn from Dory? If I start, what would Dory do to get herself out of this situation? And it's when some of the characters start thinking that way, I think that the film gets really, really interesting. Um, this isn't new, though. I mean, there's something about a lot of the critical discourse around this film is like, oh, it's, you know, it's all this celebration of diversity and stuff but i mean you know this is i mean i remember one of my favorite books when i was a kid was the pit the fairy that wouldn't fly by pixie o'harris and dumbo you know this stuff is not which is a very different kind of film but these certainly aren't new tropes in children's no but it's handled nicely in this because that can be a really patronizing trope yeah. as well when done badly and there are actually multiple characters in this film who all combine uh to egg each other on to overcome uh, their challenges so there's a uh, a beluga whale who's short-sighted and, um, uh, no, is that a whale shark that's short-sighted and a beluga whale that uh, is having trouble with um, its echolocation powers and between them, yes. they manage to well, actually, I shan't spoil anything. But, but then there's also gorgeous a... Gorgeous energy. There, there is yeah. this beautiful symbiotic relationship mm, to is. the animal's form, yeah. And even a, a really adult-seeming bird that it nonetheless Becky. finds... Becky. Yeah. I love Becky. Becky's yeah. my favourite character in this whole film. Becky the bird with the bucket. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I, I can't follow on from that alliteration. <laughs> <laughs> Finding Becky, that's Alliteration my, that's conquers all. Oh, yeah. Well, look, it's, uh, there is definitely that message. Those very positive messages are smuggled into this film in a, in a way that I think is more is quite readily appreciable by adults and I'm sure that message will be uh, filtered down to the kids as well. Yeah, I agree. We've been talking about Finding Dory. Look, I, I think this is good Pixar. I don't think this is... I don't think this reaches the heights that they have in the past, but I think this is a, a really good, strong film. It didn't make me cry and the, the best Pixar films had <laughs> me at some point in their runtime just it, weeping oh, yes. up a storm. It undid a lot of the damage from The Good Dinosaur for me. I dodged that bullet. Oh, you really did. I heard did. that was that a bit was basic. Just a yeah. car crash. Just yeah. a car crash. Bad dinosaur. (laughs) (laughs) But good finding Dory, the forgetful fish. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. I think it's very important for a a film show to mention the passing of a couple of very notable people uh, in the past 48 hours even. Um, most uh, very significant, I think, to many of us being M- Melbournians. Sarish, you're an adopted Melbournian, I suppose. <laughs> I'm cool with that. Um, is, is the passing of, is the death of, of Paul Cox. Uh, 
I don't think it's too much hyperbole to say one of the most important Australian filmmakers, um, originally from Europe, but very much made Australia his home and embrace Australian iconography to make distinctively... I guess art films. We often bandy around the term art house and art film to basically mean sort of non-mainstream or small distribution, but Cox had a really unique vision that I think came a lot from European filmmaking. He made very personal films. They were highly subjective. They did not always work, but he was one of those filmmakers that you would give him a pass because he was so true to his vision. And look, he'd been sick for a very long time. He he had a liver transplant not uh, maybe six or seven years ago, which gave him a whole new lease of life. Um, and you just look at this body of work, which includes films like Man of Flowers and My First Wife in the early 80s. More recently, films like Innocence. We saw Force of Destiny, which was the opening film of Myth last year. Uh, a really extraordinary auteur. And I think a true maverick, uh, a, a true independent spirit of Australian cinema. Yeah, I, I'm not actually that acquainted with much of his filmography, um, but I, this is going to be weird, but I remember him especially for a small role he had in a Guy Madden film, uh, an early feature of his called Careful. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah um, Cox is there. He doesn't have a lot of dialogue, but he's part of this hugely incestuous love triangle or quadrilateral, trapez, trapezium, I think, or may even have had more sides. Septagon. Uh, yeah, septagon. It was bonkers. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he, he held that role with a lot of dignity, and I think he, he wound up in a Madden film because they were both coming from a place of a love of certain sorts of European art film, and um, clearly he did bring that tradition to his work in Melbourne. Not quite the Madden-esque take on things, but his own uh, distinctly Euro-Melbournean uh, shtick. I've noticed in the last couple of days, with, with a pretty kind of beautiful, just on social media, there's been a really beautiful kind of outpouring of... Of kind of grief, but so much love for Paul Cox. Um, and some people have just, he's just completely fallen off the radar with. Um, and I would point out there is a really great Census of Cinema dossier yeah, from 2009 um, on Paul Cox. Spirit of Transparency, I do work for Census of Cinema. So, um, and I have. That's out there. Yeah, we're not exactly. For them. There we go. We we're all, all connections. <laughs> there is a beautiful, in that dossier is an absolutely exquisite piece by the late Roger Ebert celebrating Paul Cox's films. If he's new to you, you've never heard of Paul Cox before and you want to know why everybody's kind of flipping out about his passing, start with that Ebert article. Mm. I think it's a really nice little introduction into who he is and why he's important. Hard to track down his films, though. I was lucky enough to do an in-conversation event with him quite a number of years ago, and I, I, I think I resorted to some very old VHS copies, actually. It would be great to see his films restored yeah, and released. Yeah, I think uni libraries and places like that. I think the State yeah. Library, I might be incorrect on this, but I think they have them in their AV collection. Yeah, great. Uh, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image yep. had. That's where I went. They Cinematech. had some stuff in their, in their MediaTek. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think he just, you know, we, we bandy around the term at Maverick and kind of rebel filmmakers so much. But Cox was the real deal. And I guess not in the way you often imagine, but he really. He never compromised. He had this remarkable spirit. And I did get to cross paths with him, you know, a, a few times over the years. I won't pretend I got to know him or that he would even remember who I was, but I, the last time I saw him was a little under a year ago at a dinner where all this stuff was going wrong, and he was cracking jokes. He was really happy. He was so proud of his last film. He was a really content man looking over his films and, I think, feeling good about what he achieved. So 
I think I'm quite privileged to have that final memory of him, actually, because it's lovely. And look, while we're getting quite emotional, I want to mention a really tragic passing, which is Anton Yelchin. No doubt a lot of people have heard about this, the 27-year-old American actor who was really, I think, on the brink of doing extraordinary things. He had quite an impressive career in sort of smaller films. We saw him in things like Like Crazy, uh, Only Lovers Left Alive, uh, the wonderfully underrated um, remake of Fright Night, and recently, I love that yeah. so much. So and Green much. Room. We were talking about him a couple of weeks ago for his Green extraordinary yeah. performance in Green Room, and that Green Room is one of those films where you're like, okay, this guy is is going to be a big star. You know, mm. I think up until that point. In the popular imagination, the mainstream imagination, he's the Star Trek guy. And there's another Star Trek film um, he's in that's already yeah. in the can, isn't there? Yes. That's, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and definitely one of the shining forces in the Star Trek films. Like, he stood out. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying this just because he, he's recently died and I'm trying to make more of it out of it than it would be, but I think he, he had a, it was an actor with so much promise. And it's, we haven't got all the details yet, but it sounds like the most ridiculously random, unfair, cruel accident that I'm talking too soon. So, 20, you know. 27 years old. 27 years old. It's, it's really not fair. We're going to say Vale, Anton Yelchin, and Vale, Paul Cox. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R. Three, triple, ah. We're now going to turn our attention to The Fits. This is the debut feature film as writer and director for the American filmmaker Anna Rose Holmer. She has had experience producing. It premiered last year at the Venice International Film Festival and screened in Melbourne recently as part of the Essential Independence American Cinema Now Film Festival. It's now screening at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image until the 10th of July. Now, the film is about 11-year-old Tony, who trains as a boxer with her brother but wants to be part of a competitive dance battle group who train next door. During the course of the film, we discover that there is an affliction affecting the girls in the troupe. Or is it an affliction? Dialogue is minimal, there are almost no adult characters, nearly the entire cast are African-American. I'm going to say there are no overt social issues being directly explored and the film feels like it's very much being deliberately made so that it's widely open to interpretation. Alex, I I think you were very impressed by this. I'm nuts with this film. This is, like, hands down one of my films of the year so far. Like, I just... I went bananas for this film. There was a film a couple of years ago that I think we were going to talk about last year on the show, but we ended up not doing it for some reason, which was called The Falling by Carol Morley, which was made in 2014. Interestingly, I think, like, the director of this film, she has a background in documentary filmmaking, so I, I think that that's curious. The Falling is a very similar presence, um, sorry, premise, in that it's it's just about a bunch of young girls that suddenly start falling over for no no apparent reason um it's quite uncanny that they really are the same kind of premise very very different films though what i love about uh the the falling kind of goes off the rails i think in the last third and it loses its enigma this film really embraces its enigma this film really relies on that enigma and that refusal to really give us anything to really make its punch um i'm fascinated i have a really driving interest in representations of girlhood on film and I don't mean little children and I don't mean teenage girls. I'm not talking about the sisterhood of the travelling pants or <laughs> stuff like that. But there's just a whole kind of liminal age of girls that we very rarely see on film. Girls around 11, 12 years old in that kind of pre-puberty stage. There's some real discomfort culturally, I think, that we have about putting girls that age on film and telling their stories. Um, a couple that I was thinking of when I was thinking about the fits is a, a Lucille... 
Hadzi Halilovic. <laughs> uh, Innocence. Maybe. Thank you. <laughs> I think I got her name right. Uh, Innocence from 2004, I think, is a really notable um, exception to this. That was a, a, a terrible film. I'll say it from the outset. A really terrible film, but a fascinating film made in 2006 called Pathogen, a zombie film made by a young woman called Emily Haggins, who was 12 years old when she made it. It's a zombie film. Not the best zombie film I've ever seen, but it got a lot of festival play because everybody was like, holy hell, a 12-year-old girl has made a zombie film. Best thing about this is that she put all of her friends in it. So and I remembered watching this film and being really shocked by seeing 11 and 12-year-old girls on film. There's something about seeing kids that age, having stories about girls that age. The Fits is like my dream version of this trope um, because it tells the story of a young girl whose story we very rarely hear. And I love the ambiguity to it. I love how textural it is. There's this a moment at the start where she runs I think there's a group of the dance troupe kind of run past her and she wipes her hand on one of them and she gets gold paint on her finger and there's a close up and it's just honestly one of the most beautiful images I've seen in a film this year I'm rambling, I love this film so much It, it uh, really does toy with some of the uh, zombie film uh, genre conventions even to the point of explicitly alluding to zombieism at one point uh, and then not long after cutting away to a domestic space where there's a television, not in focus, interestingly, but you, you hear it nonetheless, much as we're accustomed to ever since Night of the Living Dead, introduce the idea that if some sort of weird plague, maybe it's zombies or something else, was to um, affect uh, a community or a whole nation or beyond, that uh, we'd learn about it through mass media and that that little little tip of the hat to that in this film which also then really it's it's actually a piece of misdirection i think very deliberate because we're we're then thinking oh okay it's a zombie film now we get it but it is much more enigmatic than that it it, um yeah it's a really clever film Uh, there's some gorgeous sound design uh, just helps create that uncanny atmosphere often it's just a sense of the ambient sound within, um, let's say, a gymnasium-type space or so on, just having those sort of not quite high-pitched frequencies but sort of noisy, buzzy things that just are unsettling, even if nothing visually unsettling is going on. And it it does help build up a really strong atmosphere. And I, I think it is amplified by, as you say, Alex, this um, lack of familiarity we have with seeing girls of this sort of age depicted on screen. And then I suppose for us as a bunch of white, you know, fairly middle-classy folk in Melbourne, the, the race element is, is very significant too because even, even less often do we see young African-American girls on film, let alone totally dominating a film. And, um, and, and it really plays, I think, with those expectations that we might have of um, uh, young girls that they might somehow be bitchy and want to tear one another apart and be clicky and, and those expectations are largely confounded, not completely. It keeps, keeps it keeps playing these games uh, with us as a viewer and I really respect that. I really like the the focus on ritual in both this and The Falling. I think that what these films, like you said, Thomas, you know, they're not quote-unquote social issues films by any stretch, but there's a fascination in these films of, of rituals of, you know, you're in this liminal space of girlhood, of going from childhood to womanhood, and there's a ritualistic component to that, and that's what these films are about. And they, they amplify the ritual, and they, they make them this kind of almost absurd... Uh, sort of spasming, falling, fitting. You know, I mean, they, they're these really kind of hyperbolic rituals that these that these young women go through. I think there's something so important going on in this film, and I love that I've only really gotten enough information from the film to circle what that is. I can't, 
I can't penetrate precisely what it is that it's doing, and I love that. Yeah, which where I got frustrated by that ultimately. I before I get to that though, I do want to say I have a huge amount of admiration for this film, and it, it's a striking looking film. It reminded me a little bit of um, uh, Hunger. So um, the, the, in, just in terms of its its look, uh, Steve McQueen's debut <laughs> film. It's a great the, film. The way there's something so recognisable about it, but so alien. It's like you're watching a bit of video art or something that, that that's moving, and of course. Steve McQueen came from a video art background, but this um just has this slightly otherworldly film, and I think it's because it's playing with our perception of what we you know. If you're seeing a film about a bunch of African American young people, I think we bring an enormous amount of cultural baggage as to what we're going to witness them doing, and this film goes into none of that. And instead, we see them doing these interesting rituals of whether it's the the boxing bouts or these these dance battles. And again, we because of the our experience watching dance films or sport films, we have all sorts of expectations about where that's going to go and the film does deny that all the time. So I, ultimately I felt like this was a little bit of a really amazing exercise building up to something extraordinary. As soon as this filmmaker makes something new, I'll be right there to see it. Um, but this did frustrate me a little bit and I just had this creeping sensation throughout the film that it's about these girls who have this strange, unfamiliar experience that takes over their whole bodies. It's uncomfortable at first, but then it's quite liberating and they feel they've grown into womanhood. And I just kept on thinking... Please tell me this isn't the very simplistic metaphor that I, I think it is. And I've got a horrible feeling that there's not much more to it than that, even though it looked amazing. Uh, I've still got an enormous amount of time for this film, don't get me wrong, but, but it felt like a beautiful exercise to me. I don't think, I mean, I didn't find it simplistic at all because of that, precisely because of that ritualistic aspect to it. Um, so it's not talking about puberty as a stage that your body goes through. I think that it's, it's really, really ramping up the kind of social the social context of that um and the subjective the subjectivity of that coming from a group of young black girls is just absolutely mind-blowing to me well there's a, a lot of uh, counterpoint there with so there's there's also there are guys in this film too and they're, they're boxes and there's relations between the boxes and the dancers but largely convivial and we know in at least one instance sexual and that seems to be actually where the the play or whatever it is uh, began but i mean it even plays with um subjectivity to the point where there's a point a couple of point of view shots which I, I think are meant to have you wondering whether the protagonist isn't in fact wishing all of this upon other upon her peers where she's often looking at people just perhaps as they start to fit uh, there's especially one scene where she's looking at, in on an interview scenario and it's all very intriguing I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this, this was open to quite different interpretations across multiple viewings because there's enough play there with familiar uh, genre conventions and just to film language that is, I think it does create a good deal of ambiguity. And, and by the end of the film, you know, it's very close, it's very enigmatic, but equally, um, uh, that enigma could have been any, um, any, well, it could have been something Wicker Man-ish even. I could mm. half have imagined all the, all of the, the school-aged kids go out onto a, the, the school field and there's an enormous Wicker Man or woman there and something ghastly happening. Uh, spoiler alert, that doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> 
the end of this film is amazing. I mean, I, I did start to have my patience waned by this film because it just wasn't giving me anything to grasp onto. And there's a very good chance I'm really not the intended target audience for this film. I feel like a bit of a philistine, actually. I, I thought Dory wasn't realistic enough and I, you know, <laughs> this film wasn't explaining enough to me. It's interesting because that's exactly... Like, what I like is how much it held back. <laughs> yeah. I thought there was a huge amount of confidence by it not giving us And stuff. I normally like that. I really but liked I, its I, restraint. I wasn't convinced the filmmaker did that with any real sense of putting out some kind of profound ideal. I think it was... It felt obtuse for stylistic reasons rather than thematic reasons. Oh, I think it felt stylistic for obtuse reasons. <laughs> I think it was there to, to, genera- to generate yeah. mystery and, and a sense of unease, which um, yeah, stuck with me. And par- partially in a way to compare... I mean, it's a strange film to compare it to, but The Tribe that we watched last year, which no, is set I, in a, I thought a of The Tribe and, and The Witch, actually. Yeah, in a, well, The Tribe in particular for mm. me because there was a constant drumbeat in that film, which is, this is not for you. You're not meant to understand this. Like, I'm holding back from you because this isn't your story. This is not a story that you're allowed to have on a platter. There was something about that that I found very gripping and very powerful. Three, triple R. Now, the Young Girls of Rockford will be screening from this Thursday for one week at Cinema Nova as part of their Nova Iconic series. This 1967 French film is the final part of Jacques Demy's very loosely defined romantic trilogy following The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which we discussed two weeks ago. Rochefort is far closer to a classical Hollywood musical than Cherbourg in structure, style and tone in that the film isn't all sung, but as per most musicals, the characters break from reality and burst into song. There is also a big focus on dance in this film, significantly aided by the presence of Gene Kelly, but also George uh, Shakiris, who had played Bernardo in the film version of West Side Story. This is a breezy and mostly light story about various lovers-to-be who keep missing each other despite the abundance of coincidences that connect them all. The various storylines all revolve around two twin sisters played by real-life sisters, although not twins in real life, Catherine Deneuve and Francois Doliac. I adored this film. It's gorgeous, How did I get through my it? life until now without <laughs> seeing this film? And I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think this might be my favourite Demi film. Big call. Is it because Gene Kelly has really tight slacks? I think that helps. Because they're like... I think the direction to the costume design in this film was keep it tight and short. There, it doesn't matter what your bend is, there's a lot to look at in there's this some, film. There's some, there's some curves. <laughs> this is a gorgeous-looking film in all regards. Now, I, I love how much fun they're having with the musical format in this. The, the, the dance is beautifully choreograph- choreographed. Gene Kelly did some of it. I think they wanted him to do it all, but he said, I'm only in France for three weeks, so I'll do what I can, shoot my scenes, and I'm out of here. But I, I love the song. There's so much delight, but also sort of a wicked sense of humour in some of it as well. There's a really random and joke about a serial killer in the second half of the film. Um, yeah, it's just the, the, the energy and the joy of life in this film had me with a ridiculous grin on my face from, you know, ear to ear throughout the entire film. There's also the kind of meta story about the two sisters in real life, mm. Francois Deloriac. Uh, Doliac. Doliac. Francois, yeah. Uh, yeah, Francois Dol- yeah. Who died three months after mm. this was filmed in a car accident. She was she was meant to be the big famous one, I think, was the thing, was that she was the she was the rising star of the family. I think Deneuve's a year older, but, but Deneuve Deloriac was more was, famous at the time. She was, but, but I think the idea was the idea, was... she was going to Hollywood and she yep. was going to become the big international star. So you think yeah. Deneuve 
deserves a year younger. Um, I think it's yeah. I don't think there's a year between yeah. them. Yeah. And she was the dancer. I mean, the irony in this film is Catherine Deneuve plays the character who's a dancer, and you can tell that Deneuve isn't the greatest dancer. <laughs> but um, yeah, Dorliac played the one who was a musician. It's quite haunting watching the two two sisters together on screen and kind of knowing that because it's such a beautiful, joyful film about sisterhood, um, both both on screen and you know off. It's Quite, yeah, quite breathtaking. And Dorliak had quite a, a career already at this stage, but I haven't seen most of those films outside of Polanski's Cul-de-sac. She's so good in that. Yeah, she yeah. is. Yeah, they, they're uh, both both Genova and Delor. Yeah, Delor uh, had done a Polanski. Yeah, and yeah. both would. Uh, I mean, uh, Dorliak wound up with Francois Truffaut yep. in a relationship for years, and Deneuve would do at least a, a film, a couple of films with him. The Last Metro springs straight to mind. Um, anywho, uh, well, look, this film is a meta thing. It's all about all these connections you can make on and off screen. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of um, a lot of tippings of hats to American musicals here, but there's something somehow very Frenchy about this whole enterprise as well. It's it's very kooky, um, <laughs> and and, and it, yes, it's a musical in a, a much more conventional musical sense than Umbrellas of Sherbo was, in which you know the music and the singing was. In fact, so relentless that you couldn't call it a musical because no one broke into song. It was just sung. But in this one, the choreography sometimes pulls people who are just as a backdrop into the choreography, and sometimes it doesn't. It's really odd, the relationship between bystanders and the people involved in any song or dance number. It's it's somehow something very new wavy about that. I watched this with somebody who'd never seen it before, and their comment was that it um, it was like, okay, so this is where Björk got the, um, what's the Björk song and dance? It's Oh So Quiet. Oh So Quiet. They knew that It's Oh So Quiet was obviously riffing on something very directly, and it was only when they saw this film that they realised that this was it. Um, And I'd never actually made that connection myself, but it's like, that's exactly what this is. People come into just into the dance off the street you know they leap out of shops and it's exactly that it also reminded me of the scene in the fisher king in terry gilliam's oh, fisher king my film. favorite scene where robin williams is in love and he's he, he's following the girl of his dream in the subway and everyone just suddenly starts waltzing it's just this idea that the crowd you are in becomes your subjective um uh, projection of of your emotion and so that, that's what's happening in this film people are full of life and joy and that means all the passerbys on the street spontaneously burst into dance and i I think I adore that. I think I, I don't consider myself a fan of dance, but whenever I see it done well, it, I find it moving in a way that I can't quite express in words. And I think it's just amazing that some people can express so much emotion through their physicality. And when you've got a film like this, and that emotion is, is joy and love, I'm sold. I'm choking back tears. I'm so happy watching <laughs> films like this. Well, there's highly choreographed cinematography too. It's not, say, at any point really a very static camera and just bodies in motion like proscenium style. The, the, the cinematography gets caught up in the euphoria and there's some extraordinary crane shots in this this film where we, we leave one bunch of bodies in motion and go up into apartment blocks or um and actually there's just a lot of, I, I, for some reason i immediately always conjure up when i think of this film the image of, of catherine Deneuve playing a trumpet um, <laughs> yes. it's extremely unconvincing but wonderful uh, and it's a dance rather than actually performing a musical instrument um everything in this film dances at some point but yet there's like with umbrellas but not as it's not as poignant but there's still pathos galore and there's all of these slightly missed encounters and a suggestion that maybe happiness is just elusive it it permeates his entire film and all that joy in it It, it's like umbrellas there is a real tension between 
greater satisfaction and beauty and delight in the glory of beautiful things and people, but then um, just the sadness and futility of human existence. It's all woven in there too. And Demi has a field day with that tension. And I'll, sorry, I love the use of colour in this film, and it's an interesting point of comparison with Sherbog, which we were going nuts about last week, the week before, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, in which obviously you can't really talk about the umbrellas of Sherbog and not talk about colour. This film uses colour, I think, in a really different way, and that it. I think it's such a strange word to use, but this is almost veering more towards something closer to naturalism but but it's not because it's so synthetic but compared to Sherbrooke absolutely but there's lots of colour so you have these kind of lots of white light when I think of this film I think of lots of white but with these really vivid blocks of of colour you know there's this amazing sequence where the girls perform on stage in the square with these red sequin dresses a beautiful Mm. shout out to the Monroe uh, Jane, Jane Russell, Jane Russell, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's yeah. In that? Jane Russell. Yeah. Thank it's you. It's a direct shout out. Really, yeah, and it's, isn't it's it? the same yeah. frocks. It's just yeah. absolutely beautiful. But with this, like those, you know, this pink background, I think. But then all on a kind of white set. You know, this this kind of clash of white in this film really makes that color just pop. Yeah, you know, this came out in 1967, and I noticed just looking at my own my own DVD library because I keep my films in uh, year of release order. Nerd. I know, and I just noticed that <laughs> 1967 was an amazing year for French cinema, and it was a lot of big name directors doing maybe not their most famous film, but in many ways their best film or ones that I personally adore. So as, as well as you know the young girls of Rockfort, uh, Jean Luc Godard did Weekend, which I think is one of his masterpieces. Jacques Tati did Playtime, which is actually probably one of my top favourite films of all time. And uh, Jean-Pierre Melville did Les Samurai. So something was in the water that year in style France. Style was in the water. So much style. Yeah. But all... so much intelligence. I mean, that's the French, isn't it? Just to throw a really overused cliche out there. <laughs> yeah, but then of all of them, say Goddard despaired of the cinema and declared it in, in Weekend to be dead. That film was the end of cinema. Just yeah, that's yeah. almost the antithesis yeah. of this, that's isn't it? That's that car crash stuff in Weekend. Yeah. And the, my favourite line in any French film, my Hermes Bag. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's the obliteration of, of cinema where I think The Young Girls of Rockford is the celebration of so much of what cinema is and so much of what cinema is because of Hollywood. I mean, Jacques Demy, like, like so many French filmmakers, kind of have this torment about American cultural imperialism, but they also love it to bits. And this, this is, a, I mean, much more than Umbrellas of Sherbrooke, this is a love letter to classical yep. Hollywood musicals. I mean, and, and not just because of the presence of mm. Gene Kelly in his 50s, I think, by this stage. He wasn't... Still pretty fleet yeah. of foot. Yeah, he those, looks good, doesn't he? Yeah. Those slacks, my goodness. <laughs> I'm blushing, my goodness, and I, I adore George Chakiris. I mean, West Side yeah. Story is such a... He's got such a raw power in that film, and it was lovely seeing him in, in this film. Kind of, I don't know, sort of bottle it up a little bit more because his character is not quite as primal as his character in West Side Story. But um, I don't know, still bursts for the scene. He does. He can, he can move his legs. I'm sounding really too obsessed here. <laughs> not at all, Thomas. And sailors. There are a lot of sailors. A lot of sailors and a lot of very short skirts. Yeah, I think uh, Jacques Demy is, is kind of having it both ways, so to speak, in this film, which was kind of where he was heading it around this point while still a closeted um, young queer, not that young anymore but it's very interesting the more you watch his films in any sort of chronological sense you might pick up on him, I think becoming rather more assured in um, uh, what, how should we say this, finding the comeliness of both the male and the female oh, oh, form on screen. Wow, wow that is, is that the word you chose? Comeliness. <laughs> uh, and it's all there for us to enjoy. It feels, <laughs> I, I love films like this which feel kind of so innocent on one level. I'm, I'm polite. <laughs> 
that there is such an innocent charm to this film, but it's also very sexual and kind of that there's a real I don't know, I think there's a real erotic energy behind yeah, it's it. It's totally well. a huge erotic charm. It's kind of dirty. To... I mean there's points that are I mean, smart, yeah, you know? sailors are straight out of uh, Jean Genet's imagery, you know, mm. heavily homoeroticized. Um, uh, uh, yeah, alongside women who, especially once all sequined up into sort of drag queen icons like Marilyn Monroe, Jane Russell, this sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah, he's uh, he, he, he's twigged. <laughs> <laughs> that was so much fun. You've been listening to Plato's Cave with Thomas Caldwell. That's me, Cerise Howard, and Alexandra Heller Nicholas are That's across her. the desk tonight. That's you two. <laughs> Finding Dory is on wide release through Walt Disney Studios. The Fitz is screening at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, courtesy of Curious Films. The Young Girls of Rockfort will screen at Cinema Nova for one week from this Thursday. Longer. Oh, wouldn't it be great if it just went on for the entire year? And umbrellas and that back-to-back, double bill. Please. That would be the best double ever. Go and catch this film, folks. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.